Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From the newsroom at Eater, I'm Amanda Clute. And I am Daniel Janine. And this is Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. With a little help from the biggest names in the world of food and the team here at Eater, we try to understand what's happening right now in kitchens, restaurants, and dining rooms around the world. Today on the show, everything you need to know about natural wine, Daniel. Yeah, it's, I need this. You need this. this I need to for, know everything. This is for you. And later on the show, we get into the big controversy with Mama Fuku's investor. We get into White Claw. We get into a drive through ban. Oh, yeah. We get into... So many stories. So many stories. But first, we are going to talk about everything natural wine, which right. is a big, big thing these days, especially in certain cities. Yeah, this really came up for me. I started talking about doing this because I love natural wine, but I would just go into restaurants, wine bars, and I would say things that would make me feel so uncomfortable. I would just be like, what do you have that's funky or mm-hmm. like what do you have that's raw or and I always got it mixed up in my head am I doing it like I don't want to be perceived as someone that cares about this for health reasons right. I want I don't want to be perceived as someone who is just like into it now because it's trendy well and I think there are some real misconceptions about what natural wine is yeah. and there are people out there who say oh I only drink natural wine or people who say oh I hate natural wine without really diving into the reasons why um, because it's not necessarily a flavor yeah it is a way of making the thing natural wine is is for me it's really an ideal it's the ideal of making wine without any chemical additives in the vineyard and as minimal manipulation in the winery as possible this is joe campanelli of fausto and lalu in brooklyn go check the restaurants out they are fantastic he is a natural wine fanatic and an overall wine expert and those chemical additives that you can use in the vineyard are generally fall into the categories of uh, fertilizers herbicides, pesticides, fungicides. So they try to use no chemicals whatsoever. And then once you get into the winery, if you don't do anything, any manipulation at all, it'll just turn to vinegar. So it's using as little manipulation as possible and trying to not alter the flavor of the wine, uh, not adding things like acid, adding uh, sugar to increase the alcohol, not doing high amounts of Mm. like filtration and, and that sort of thing. There is no official definition of mm-hmm. natural wine. That's that's mine. I think that's what I think a lot of wine professionals would agree on. It's this idea of trying to manipulate wine as little as possible. And other you know, buzzwords we've heard about natural wine, there's organic, there's biodynamic. Can you talk about those two words and what they mean? Organic wine means a wine that's made without the use of chemicals, and that's all. And you can have an organic certified wine or one that's just practicing organic. All natural wines are organic, but not all organic wines are natural, right? There's there's organic additives that you can add that don't really fit into the natural wine world. And also in the natural wine world, there's this idea that you should use as little sulfur as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Um, and organic wines minimize it, but you can have an organic wine with, say, like 80 parts per million sulfur, and the, a natural wine producer might might think that's a little bit too much. Mm. And then uh, biodynamics is based on the teachings of this uh, Austrian guy named Rudolf Steiner, uh, <laughs> who uh, had this sort of very interesting way of approaching farming and thinking of the farm as part of a larger ecosystem that included the phases of the sun and the moon and the stars. He didn't originally apply it to winemaking, and so it was only in the Loire Valley in the early 1980s that people started to use the biodynamic tenets mm. for, for winemaking. Some of my favorite wines in the world are, are biodynamic. It's a little woo-woo, right? Like, it's a little, like, don't you bury a skull somewhere? And There's there's definitely some crazy elements. If you uh, don't know all of them, yeah, one of them is, like, burying a manure-filled cow horn for six months and digging it up and grinding it up and putting it into a water bath and stirring it for hours and spraying it like I don't know. I like how you said, like, yeah, there's some kind of woo-woo stuff, (laughs) like burying a cow. One could consider biodynamic (laughs) practices a little. But I will tell you that one of the great things about biodynamics is that it forces winemakers to be in their vineyards a lot and to Mm -hmm. do things by hand a lot. Maybe the cow horn isn't magically making the wine better, but someone that dedicated to wine Mm -hmm. is going to make a good wine. And you know what? Maybe the cow horn is making the wine better. Uh, it's not <laughs> impossible. It's not impossible. One of the things that I love about wine is that... Maybe it's just the right amount of manure. It's mm-hmm. we, we can't know everything about it. There is... There's... It's, there's some magic. There's some level of mysticism and magic, and I think that's that's okay and that's exciting, especially with natural wines. So natural wine is huge and getting bigger and bigger. Joe, can you give us a quick history? The history of natural wine. Natural wine has been made for the majority of wine history. For thousands and thousands of years, people were making wine without any additives, uh, with little manipulation in the cellar, and they, there just wasn't a name for it. It was just called wine. Uh, it was really only in the 20th century with the advent of machine harvesting, uh, chemical fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides, and really a move away from the farmland, from vineyards uh, into big cities, that people started moving away from this idea of natural and organic wine and making uh, making a more industrial wine, making mm. a more mechanical wine. And uh, really in the 1970s with the organic food movement, people started to also give a term, uh, call organic wines organic wines, but it really wasn't taking on uh, until the 80s. And uh, in the 80s, especially in Beaujolais, there was a group of Beaujolais producers who were all led by this uh, one guy, Jules Chauvet. And uh, they were called the Gang of Four, and they were they started bringing back these no intervention ideals of natural wine, not using any chemicals, doing everything by hand, not manipulating things uh, in the winery, and biodynamic wine was coming around as well. But really, it was only in the last ten years that people gave a term to natural wine, and it's really wine that's made without anything added, without anything taken away. And uh, I'm hopeful that mm-hmm. in the future, at some point, people will just go back to calling it wine. Mm. Mm. We'll have to call wines that are made with agrochemicals, that are made with additives, that are made in an industrial manner. We'll have to call them something like mm. the way you call mm-hmm. fast food something other than just food. So really, unnatural wine was the invention. The new invention, not natural wine. It's such a good point. Unnatural wine was the invention, but it's amazing just how quickly it, it took on, right? Like part of it started in the late 19th century with phylloxera, which was this vineyard louse that got brought over to Europe on trading ships. 
and there was a crisis in Europe. Tons of vineyards were uh, were being destroyed, followed shortly after by something else that was brought over in training ships called oidium, uh, this kind of mildew. And then after World War II, you had uh, depopulation. You had all of this like leftover munitions and uh, the nitrogen from bombs you, was very easy to use in, in hmm. for fertilizer and vineyards. Um, you needed to figure out a way to do the same sort of work with less people. So you had all these advances in, in machines. And then there's more. Uh, <laughs> in, the, in the 80s and 90s, we had uh, some very influential critics, uh, most notably Robert Parker, right? And uh, Robert Parker really loved this ripe high alcohol, very clean, pure fruit style. So people tried to make wines to appease this Robert Parker style. They're hiring consultants who were making these very technical wines because at that time, you know, if Robert Parker gave you a high score, you became wealthy. It it was that easy. The good thing is now today there's a lot more voices and I think there's been a, a push away from that style too. Um, but now natural wine is a conscious choice for a lot of people. They want to be part of this movement. It's funny to think about the marketing aspect of this, yeah. how there are some wine bar owners who have been serving organic slash natural wines for a little while, but by calling it a natural wine bar and marketing it as such, they're getting a lot more attention. Yeah, It's easier or more, I don't know, exciting to sell it as a natural wine bar or like there's a restaurant near me that's like a chicken and natural wine bar like right. that's such a nice marketing <laughs> phrase we also know we have some insight on this and, and natural wine maps do a lot of clicks sure yeah, yeah yeah can you talk about how the consumer interest has changed in the last 10 years that you've been running restaurants because i remember your first restaurant you had orange wine on the menu and i don't think it was that popular that's so true. In 2007, we had uh, we had orange wine by the glass, and 12 years ago, you really had to convince people to try wines that didn't have sort of stereotypical flavors, flavors that you'd expect in a wine. And now people are just craving it. Orange wine is really hot. I was having a, a meeting with my partner, Dave, over at Lalu, and he was just like, I need to cut this meeting short so I can get my orange wine order in for tomorrow because if we don't have enough for the weekend, people are going to go crazy. Wow. Yeah. Is it like the new rosé in New York? It's the new (laughs) rosé. For sure at Lalo, we're we're selling more orange wine in the summer than we're selling rosé. Really? Which is wild. Wow. And we could not, I could not give it away before. Like we get so many requests, like give me something that I've never had before. Give me something that is strange. Like I love, I'm so excited by how open-minded people are um, now. And I think there's just been such a, a sea change. One of the biggest misconceptions for me that we've cleared up is that natural wine is synonymous with funky and that natural wine can actually encapsulate the whole spectrum of wine. Some it's of the synonymous cleanest. with funky with certain people who are misinformed, I think. Right. That is an incorrect yes. parallel. Do to be- not think of it as synonymous with funky. People who are turned off by natural wine are maybe thinking of a very small subset. Mm-hmm. Like they had some funky wines, they had some cidery wines or something really cloudy or something they just really didn't like. And they said, I don't like natural wine, right. but maybe they haven't really tried some of the cleaner 
options. Some natural wines are on the cloudy, funky, weirder spectrum, and some are like crystalline and pure and precise and clean. And I think that's one of the things that, that's hard for people to wrap their head around with natural wine. Like natural wine isn't a style. I think it's more of an ideal. Mm-hmm. It's this ideal that where you're, you're trying to push towards an ideal of not adding any chemicals and trying to manipulate wine as little as possible. And some people are able to make something that seems like a really traditional, typical Chablis, but in that style, you're in the natural wine ideal, you're actually going to get a lot more liveliness out of it, I think more complexity. And some people want to make wines that are more cidery and weird, and they can do that with using natural wine techniques as well. The way that this came together is I, I always felt a little bit self-conscious in restaurants ordering natural wine because I didn't know what to ask for, and I felt silly saying things like funky. or. And now I'm learning it can be clean, but I, how do I order natural wine intelligently in this current time where not all wine is natural. So I think if you are at a good restaurant and you say, I really love natural wine, what natural wines do you have? They'll be able to get you a natural wine. So recently we went to chat with other natural wine fans at June, a restaurant in Cobble Hill, to ask people how they order their natural wine. I usually ask the bartender just to give me whatever's the funkiest wine on the menu. You know, if I look at a list and I see natural wines, I usually will order from that. I wanted to drink some Riesling tonight because my girlfriend really enjoys uh, drinking Moser Riesling, but she's only had traditional style Riesling where they add sulfur to it, uh, makes it taste, you know, like corrects the wine. Well, I always gravitate towards the skin contacts, which used to be called orange wines, but not anymore. Yeah. I know that about you. I love that. (laughs) First orange wine I ever had was with you in that back booth, and I loved it too, to be fair. The bartender just gave it to me because I had been coming in and they knew that I was an adventurous drinker. Yeah, it was kind of enlightening. I mean, you know, it's, it was like getting, it was kind of like getting green strawberries here, unripe strawberries. That was also, you know, just kind of an eye opener. Are there any words that people say when you're on the floor that bother you about natural wine? What should I not, what words can I avoid? Tell me how to be cooler. Uh, honestly, the <laughs> you know the thing about working in the restaurant industry is that you come across all kinds of people, and you have to. <laughs> we used to have this sign up that said, uh, "No, I don't want to say it actually." No, uh, tell us. Uh, give us the sign. Hospitality is treating everyone like they're at home, even when you really wish they were there. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. Um, no, mostly our, but not at our guests at La Lua Fausto. They are no. so wonderful. They're perfect, uh, of course. Right, that I, wasn't <laughs> in one of the restaurants that you are. No, not, no, they're so great. I love them all. Um, I would say I would really personally don't love it when people say I want the most effed up wine you have. Yeah, mm. like I don't mm-hmm. like that. I, think, I want shit floating in the fucking bottom. <laughs> yeah, uh, like I don't know. That's that's not my favorite thing to hear, but. Yeah. So people say, but we could still find them. I still have wines that you know. I maybe they're the most the weirdest thing that we have, uh, and then we'll have wines that are funky enough to like get people excited about that. So we, I've never come across even people who ask that uh, a wine that we have that isn't weird enough for them or funky enough for them. So if if Dan asks for something funky, that's not you're not going to roll your eyes. You can say weird funky. Yeah, you can say a little cloudy if you like. If you like wines are a little cloudy Mm -hmm. or. 
uh, I think you can say like, what wines do you have like from really small producers that are making wine in like a traditional way? Like <laughs> okay. that's something that I've done before. Like, you know, the traditional way I think is a good keyword. Yeah, Alice Firing wrote that in her in her new book that Dan and I are reading right now, Natural Wine for the People, where it's just saying small producer traditional methods, things like like that's those are good keywords. Another thing that people should keep in mind, we talked about this a little bit, but people should learn the kinds of things that they like. And if they find something they like, maybe ask the sommelier, like, how would you describe this wine? So I know how to ask for it again. I think that's a great, that's a really great point. It's a great tip. Yeah. Because sometimes I have a glass of wine, I'm like, I love this, and then I forget. And someone's like, okay, what, what, what do you want today? And I'm like, I don't know. Like That thing I had yesterday. Right. Clean, uh, you know. There's a short amount of vocabulary that can get you very far with wine. Like you can, you can say like clean. I think is a really good word, especially when you're talking about natural wines, because some aren't. Mm-hmm. But if you can let someone know if you want a white, red, rosé, or orange, right? First then, step. First step. Uh, and then, you, I mean, body, I think, is really helpful. Like, if you're looking for something, like, really full-bodied or really light-bodied, a really an old wine adage is, like, light-bodied is, like, skim milk, full-bodied is, like, cream. So, mm-hmm. um, so the color, the body, if you want something that has more fruit or you call it fruit forward, if you want to be in the know or on the earthier side. I have an, man, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. How do you say what your price range is when you are ordering wine? I usually just say it. What do you say? Well, it depends on what the price range is, but I'll say I'm looking for something, and I'll describe the kind of wine I'm looking for. I'll say under eighty, yeah, or under hundred, or in the sixty dollars range. But I know a lot of there are a lot of circumstances where you don't really want to say it out loud if you are hosting. If you're not comfortable like saying a price point out loud, I like to hold up a wine list and say I'm kind of looking at that one. Mm-hmm. And what do you point like, to have, one specific point one. to one? And like, um, you know, what do you have that's like it? And that gives the the sommelier a clue. Like, okay, I'm looking to spend around fifty dollars, or mm-hmm. I'm looking to spend around eighty dollars, or whatever it is. So, as someone that was early on the orange wine trend, is there anything that Amanda and I can buy stock in right now? What what's what's <laughs> how bubbling? How we seem cool to sommeliers? <laughs> what's bubbling up? Well, I think that Eastern European wines are pretty exciting right now. So, like Croatia and further east from from that, and we have wines at uh, at Lalu from the Czech Republic, and uh, as far east as Eurasia, like in Georgia, and those, those wines I think are are pretty cool and represent a really good value because grapes that no that very few people have heard of mm. that are hard to pronounce they just don't have the market value as something that's that's more famous and uh, I think there there's some really like thrilling wines and unique flavors that you don't see as often cool take your cheapest Eurasian orange wine <laughs> all right yeah. Joe Campanelli thank you so much my pleasure thank you so much for having Yay. me yeah all right so I feel like we've gotten the download we've talked to an expert seller. So why do we believe that natural wine is so popular and what are our major takeaways? I, I got to say right off the bat, I feel like it's partially due to this health thing that people feel like the sulfates are giving them headaches, mm-hmm. that a lot of the major paleo figures are like the best thing you can drink is biodynamic wine. Yes. My two friends who only drink natural wine, one is for the headaches and one is because she's a wellness freak. Oh, great. So there you go. Also, I feel like people now, you know, they're in a place, they want 
bubbles, they want experience, and they want vibrance. And incorrectly, perhaps, or partially incorrectly, people are associating natural wine with things that are just going to like slap their taste buds around. Well, I think I think that's right, and I think that people are more experimental and open-minded about the food they eat now, mm-hmm. too. It's not just about going to a steakhouse and drinking a big red wine if you're celebrating. People mm-hmm. are very open-minded and adventurous. I think that kind of parlays over to this natural wine thing where the, you know, you don't really know what you're going to get or you're going to find something that's maybe a little yeah. funkier or has more sediment than you're used to and it's um, kind of a rebellion against what you Are maybe we just grew rebelling? up with. We're maybe just we're all rebelling. <laughs> so do you think that part of the draw with traditional wines was just that like the name brand flash of the wines you were drinking and we have, as a society have started to move away from that a little bit? Or do you think it's just shifting? I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I like natural wines, but I think there are a lot of these other kinds of wines that are still incredible and some of the best in the world. So I wouldn't say that all non-natural wines right, of course, of are course. just flashy brand plays. <laughs> yeah, all the best <laughs> ones ever are just crap. And like, I, if you talk to a good number of wine experts, they will you know, kind of shit on this movement. Which may be... Which may have they won't some, shit on the movement. They yeah. will shit on the trendiness of it. Right. You know, they will shit on this, the anti-intellectual idea of people just going to a wine bar and being like, "I want something funky," without <laughs> actually learning about what they like and where it's from yeah. and what makes it what it is. And uh, you've you've said that a lot of your wine expert friends kind of see a lot of like the millennials running around to natural wine bars at, and laughing and saying they're just drinking swill. Their point that they would add in here is that. You shouldn't discount some of these other wineries just because they're not quote-unquote natural. Right. Um, there's still a lot of quality wine coming out of places that do add sulfur or other additives. Um, and I think they would say that just because it's natural doesn't mean it's going to be good. And there is a lot of crap out there. Learn about it. You know, like that's the best thing you can do. Learn about yeah. the winemaker. Learn about the region. Figure out what you like and why you like it. And it, you know, you'll then you'll be drinking well. After the break... Amanda and I are going to talk food stories. Woo! Okay, Amanda, at this point in the show, we talk about our favorite food stories of the week, and we separate them with a little sound of a ding like this. Uh, nothing else to say. Let's just let's just start. Let's get into it. Start rambling. There was a huge story on Eater, shockingly huge, the amount of traffic it got, actually, yeah. about Kevin O'Leary of Shark Tank, mm-hmm. a Toronto guy He's from the Toronto. friendly, bald guy. He's Mr. Wonderful. He's not, fr- I mean, he's the evil deal-making one. He's oh, the- sure. I don't, I don't really watch that much Shark Tank. He looks friendly. Uh, he. I think the, what's funny about you saying he looks friendly is I would say that like people who like Shark Tank would be like, oh, the jerk. Really? Yeah. Aww. He's charismatic, though. I mean, he's got some Seems bad- Seems friendly. He's got some terrible political views, but, uh, you know, he's a real money-hungry guy. That's what he prides himself on, all and all right. he does wants to do is make money. Okay. But he is- Charming, I gotta say, sometimes. You know, he's a good uh, TV personality. This is a video he put up uh, with, uh, he was interviewed by CNBC on their Make It program. And uh, he talks a lot about food. I just thought we would go through it. Cool. And you'd give your take. Ready to listen? Okay, yep. You know, I spend a lot of money on food per month because I'm traveling all the time and I'm going to restaurants to eat. And I always insist on trying to get the best food I can. We like that, right? Sure. I'm yeah, move do on. it. Get the best food you can. I don't like to eat a lot of salt or butter or sugar. I'm health conscious that way, and it helps me maintain my hectic schedule. Food is the engine of the body. You should think about what you're putting in your mouth every day. But at the end of the day, food is a great joy in life. It can also be a great social event. 
Having dinner with friends, family, or with significant others is a great way that we communicate with each other. So, Did you hear that little pause before significant others? <laughs> he's trying to decide what to say. Yeah, I would have personally edited that out. I think it makes it seem like he's a little bit not super confident. Significant others <laughs> is a great way with significant others <laughs> is a great way that we communicate with each other. So it can also be fun, his. but it's not cheap to eat out every night. I'm a bad example when it comes to how much I spend per month because I bet when I'm on the road all week, five days a week, I'm spending about $1,000 a day on food. I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> about 1000 because I'm taking people out for dinner for business. I'm buying a great bottle of wine because I hate, I hate wine. bad wine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A great bottle of wine is $200. True. I know this sounds crazy, but think about it. Unless it's it's business natural. for me. <laughs> so I probably spend about $5,000 a week or $20,000 a month on food. I'm just being honest. One of the things that I think is hilarious about this video is as he's saying I probably spend $5,000 a week, there is the B-roll on this video is like of street carts and they look like they're in Turkey or something <laughs> and it's just like skewers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. What do you think? I think I want to make friends with this guy so he can buy me $200 bottles of wine. Like good on him. Yeah. I like that this actually was made. He's not worried about when people come with pitchforks. He's just totally like, all right, I'm just going to... Put it out there. I think the I live extravagantly. <laughs> I do, and I love it. Also, he thinks food is the engine of the body. That's like I feel like it's it's you. I also think the food is the engine <laughs> of the body. I guess the thing you that guys would have fun. You should hang. I have been in an elevator with him. Oh damn! Yeah, he went. Next, you got to get on the invite list. One of these dinners. I have friends who have these big expense accounts. Yeah, and they're just like. I'll talk about these restaurants, and they're just like, yeah, been there, been there, been there, been oh, there, yeah. been there, oh been yeah, there, been there, been there. Yeah, I checked uh, Eater this morning. I saw that place opened. I'll have friends who will be like, hey, you want to go here? I'm like, what is that? They're like, eater.com, check it. And, <laughs> you know? Yeah, just funny, $1,000 a day. That's a lot of money. But, like, Daniel, if you had infinite money, what would you do with it? Besides give it away, Even if I had infinite money, well, I, I wouldn't be taking out clients. Because if I had infinite money, I don't think I would. You don't have to hang out with anybody. Like, what is my infinite money food journey? I haven't been to the michelin -y places in San Francisco. I guess I would go, but would I be able to spend $1,000? I, I, it's kind of tough, actually, spending $1,000 a day. A big thing that um, Helen Rosner, who used to work here, used to talk about a lot is that it's hard to signal mass amounts of wealth. Sorry, Helen, if I'm getting this wrong. Um, it's hard to signal mass amounts of wealth with food the way you can with other things that you can spend on lavishly. Mm -hmm. The way you can do it with food is oftentimes with wine, but there's a limit to how much a restaurant is going to charge you. Not for wine, though. Not for wine. Wine is but the like way. But for the menu, like yeah. it's going to top out at like, I don't know, 500. You don't hear of menus beyond that. So wine is the way where you can like really ratchet it up. If you want to be the person in the nightclub who orders like the Ace of Spades bottle and mm -hmm. has the people with the sparklers walking, I mean, the only way you can do that is wine. Yeah. I have never been at a table. Have you ever been at a table with someone when they order like a $5,000 bottle no. of wine? I don't know what that interaction is like. I like would like if to the, see if what the song. Like the just like. <laughs> like it's happening. Oh my God. <laughs> I got one. No, but. I did it. Yeah. Do you think that they play it? I mean, I'm sure everyone has it, does it totally different, but I, I would be, I would love to see how cool they play it. Okay. Coming out of Minneapolis, they just passed a ban on all future drive throughs Whoa. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about this ban. How come? Why? They don't want to encourage. Driving? Driving. 
this is not going to shut down. They're not going to close drive-throughs sure. that are currently there. Grandfathered in. Yeah, just no more new drive-throughs. Mm-hmm. I had never. I think what struck me initially is I had never thought of drive-throughs as a smart battlefront against the war or in the war on driving. Mm-hmm. They tried to pass it in 2012, and there was a big push against it. Like always, they went with humanitarian reasons, which is that people are driving with their kids and they want to be able to pick things up. Yeah, I was going to say, which, the parent angle is pretty strong. Pretty strong. Pretty strong. You really, like, if you have kids, they're asleep, you just want a coffee, yeah. you got that Starbucks drive through pretty, yeah. pretty essential. The Minneapolis Star Tribune editorial board added in, does anyone really want to walk up to an ATM on a bitter winter night and stand exposed waiting for cash to be dispensed? Prob- that person is probably buying drugs. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I mean, a lot of people need cash for things. Very cold. Minneapolis is very cold. And it's actually funny that this is the first place to do it because it's yeah. one of the worst place where you don't want to get out of your car. Yeah. But bias because we live in New York City, uh, we're out in the cold all the goddamn time, and we survive just fine. How do you feel about this? Is this something you'd ever considered, shutting down drive-thrus? I've never really thought about it, mostly because I am in the bubble of New York where we don't have drive-thrus. But I have mm-hmm. to say, when I am out and about driving with kids, with kids and there's a Starbucks drive-thru, it is the nicest goddamn thing I've ever seen. How? Where would you land on this debate? If I lived in Minneapolis? Where would your vote I don't, fall? I don't, I don't know. I might. I would maybe stay out of it because I... You would abstain? Yeah, because I believe <laughs> in walking friendly cities. Yeah. But I, if I live near this, like a Starbucks where I really needed to go through the drive-thru. Yeah. Whew. Will you tweet this article with the caption, I I abstain. I abstain I'm like from this 100% debate. neutral on this. I really don't know, guys. I don't know what to do about this question. <laughs> I think the world needs more honest Amanda. You know? <laughs> just, I don't have a take, guys. <laughs> I don't know. Another thing about it is it's not just not supporting the driving. Yeah. There is also, I think, people were particularly upset about the amount of time that you wait car idling because it's yeah. kind of a place oh, yeah. where you don't mind leaving your you know you wait you're waiting for someone outside your house and you're uh, outside their house and you're with a friend and often your friend will be like hey man shut the car off you know you don't want to idle sure. and like you feel a little bad idling idling's nice you get the air conditioning going I'm not an idler I don't drive whatever <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but you know in a drive through line I, I don't think anyone feels guilty idling no you, you don't having, know how long you're going to wait no you, you might be moving at any keep, moment keep rolling yeah so I get it from from that perspective. The response from the the politicians who pass it through was, there's going to be plenty of drive throughs for you to drive through. You're just going to have to drive a little more. Right. They're also grandfathered in. Right. They're not taking away any drive throughs. I just like they've just hit peak. First, drive-thru. they take our straws. Now our drive throughs. <laughs> Damn liberals. <laughs> Big story last week. The biggest. The biggest story. Uh, Stephen Ross billionaire real estate developer was holding a fundraiser for Donald Trump at his Hamptons estate, $250,000 a ticket, right? Right. Uh, And it it stirred up some controversy. It stirred up a lot of controversy. A lot of controversy. Yeah. So why does this affect the food world? Okay. It affects the food world because he has an investing arm called Rise Ventures where he and his partners invest in a bunch of restaurants, also Resi. Ooh. Yeah. Resi and Momofuku, Milk Bar, Bluestone Lane and pizza. Sure. And so people who go to those places, many of them wanted to boycott so that their money would not be going to Stephen Ross and somehow go to Donald Trump. 
Well, let's get into the food. I think it is important to say right off the bat that the biggest boycott push came for Equinox Gym yes. and SoulCycle. Yes, his company, he is the the chairman of related companies. Related owns Equinox. Equinox owns SoulCycle. Yeah. But you are an Equinox member and a I, Momofuku fan. I'm tapering. Tell off. me what what did you what what's your take? I'm in, you know, I'm I want you to tell me what's there. <laughs> so I, I will give you my quick take, which is like on the same day, on Friday of last week, I started pulling out of Equinox. And then I also went to Mamafuku for dinner. Uh-huh. Um, and how did that make you feel? Well, honestly, I said this to you before. I sat in Equinox on the weekend because once you cancel, you still get the rest of the month. Mm-hmm. I felt shitty to be there. And I was uh. mad at myself for feeling shitty because, I don't know, I wanted to not care. I wanted to enjoy the far superior steam rooms to any gyms that I've found <laughs> in the city. It did feel possible to make a statement with the Equinox thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not much of a statement person. But right. I think that, you know, even Trump talks about how Stephen Ross is a is a major humanitarian. Right. I believe that if enough people pull out of Equinox, and I think a lot of people have, he's obviously going to know about this. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to change what goes on in his head at all. No. But I think it'll force him to be less public. I mean, maybe that's aggressive. I think he will consider being less public in his support of the candidates that that people who attend his gyms are are not supportive of. And even if he's even if he's just even if all it does mm-hmm. is forces him to be quieter about these things, yeah. maybe that justifies maybe that, that maybe that will help to justify to have people secretly funding Donald Trump. I don't think you can secretly hold one of these fundraisers. So I think he will not give hold money, a fundraiser. Though. Like again. remember you saw there was that other story last week where all the donors of the re-election campaign were exposed by Julian Castro's brother, and yeah. everyone was really upset about it. Uh-huh. It's like, just be public if you're gonna if you're gonna give money to, you know, a terrible, terrible person. Own it. Yeah, I I guess I agree. I don't know. I don't How know do you feel about yeah. these justifications? Uh, Stephen Ross publicly said, you know, he's been a lifelong supporter of diversity and all the correct buzzwords. I think it. But he goes, he's a. a Candidate by candidate or case by case. Sure, supporter. you can say that, but then giving money to someone like Donald Trump totally negates any Everything, of that. Everything, right? Yeah, of course. You you act with the money. And how do you feel about the chefs that have received big money and have been housed in Stephen Ross's megaplex Hudson yeah, Yards? Yeah, th- that's the interesting part is how um, you know all the chefs like Dave Chang released a statement about how upset he was, begging Stephen Ross to cancel the thing. Um, Milk Bar released a statement saying, oh, he's just an investor. He does not really involved with us. Jose Andres, who is a tenant of his Hudson Yards development, also asked him to stop. And I think it's interesting to see just how wrapped up one person's money can be with so many people and how mm-hmm. everyone is touched by this. Mm-hmm. And also in this world where now restaurateurs are taking VC capital, how they're they're in it. Yeah. You know, like when you when you stop being independent, you are in it with these guys and you're taking money from really rich people who have very different interests than you do. Mm-hmm. You know, like his number one interest, Stephen Ross's, is real estate and making money off the real estate industry, which means, of course, he's giving to Donald Trump. So you think it's unfair for them to act surprised? I think it's unfair of them to act surprised or dishonest. 
Um, also, Stephen Ross does not have the best track record in my mind. Like, I think he squandered a giant opportunity by turning Hudson Yards into a playground for the rich when it could have been a much more community-focused development. I know he had to make money, but there, the way he built it was just so offensive to me as a New Yorker to just turn this big swath of land into a giant mall. And that's who they're in bed with. And he's also, so he owns a football team, and he wouldn't let his players kneel during the national anthem. Um, he also used some shady techniques to try to get public funding for Hudson Yards. He's not a force for good. Do you know about the, uh, I mean, you do know about the EB-5 visa. Yeah, you want, ex- you want to explain the EB-5 well, visa? Well, as a Canadian who have, I have some friends in the world who are on one of these visas. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's insane. Explain the visa. What it is, and I believe it's changing, mm-hmm. is you pay approximately half a million dollars to a development company, and the development company is meant to use that money to create jobs in areas that they have proven somehow or another are impoverished. Impoverished, or or it's a community good. Mm-hmm. If they once they prove that they have created ten jobs using your money, then you are given a visa. Right. So it is the most effective way of buying a visa. What's crazy about this is Stephen Ross loves these visas, according to this Vanity Fair piece, and he's been using them to fund a lot of his developments. Mm -hmm. And this, according to the piece, is the number one most important thing for him, and that's why they said he cannot quit Donald Trump. What's crazy about it is is he he managed to prove that Hudson Yards was an area that w- where he was doing a good a good yeah, there how were, did he do there was it? a big city lab report about this where he somehow connected Hudson Yards which for those who don't know New York is on you know in the middle of the island on the west side connected up to Harlem via Central Park <laughs> as this one neighborhood this one development opportunity so you got to somehow say that the Hudson Yards area was impoverished and these jobs were needed there even though He's selling apartments there for tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, like, where was the outrage then, guys? Where were the boycotts then? Okay, there's something I want to talk to you about, which is a weird, like, very foodie-centric experience I've had a couple times. Okay, I love it. That is where you're out for dinner with, like, people that pride themselves on eating not just, like, American food, but food that is coming from all countries, all parts of the world. Uh You know, often uh it's taking the train somewhere far out to get a thing. I've been at tables where there's just, let's say I'm at a Thai, you were at a Thai restaurant, Uh and they happen to order, they happen to have pad Thai. Yep. There's a there's a funny way that I think super foodie people will order the pad thai where they have to they just feel like they have to just do a little bit of hand wringing where it's just like they don't want the server to think of them as like a pad thai person. Sure. So they'll never just be like, "Oh, and I'll have the pad thai." What they'll do they be say? like they'll be like, "And you know what? I've just I, I also, I'm going to get the pad thai, but just I'm just curious to see how it's made here. Like, they have to display <laughs> that they know the pad thai is the famous thing. Mm-hmm. It feels like asking a band to play their, like, their big hit. Be like, I know everyone asks you to play this right, song. But I do it's just really want It's really my wife's thing. favorite. Like, I know it's our anniversary. It would really mean a lot to us. I'm sure you get this request all the time. <laughs> I just, I think that they, they're, they're so desperate for this restaurant to know that they don't need the pad thai to eat well, there. Well, not just the restaurant, but 
the company, right? Oh, and the company, of course. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I would add on to that is I will never order Pad Thai <laughs> among like a cool foodie crowd. Why not? I'd be too embarrassed. Well, exactly. That's the thing, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm like that person, except I just won't do it. I will only eat Pad Thai in the secrecy of my own home. Like even if we're doing if we're doing a group order here at the office, yeah. like oh, I'm not gonna order yeah. I'm not gonna this order rocks. the pad thai. I'm gonna be like, uh I'll have Crab the, the, the yeah. papaya salad, like yeah. the spicy thing I can barely get through because it's so spicy. And you just really want the sweet ass pad thai. And people look over at you and you're just like, I'm a cry. So there is something about, you know, signaling your food culturalism. Yeah, like I'm, I'm cool. I know. Why wouldn't you would never get the pad thai? Like you would you? I'm sure I've done it like here or there with office you, ordering. And that is flattering to us. You would not care here. You would be like, no, <laughs> like, I'm going to get the pad thai. Like, screw you guys. I'm getting No, you want I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a thing. You it's don't a real need thing. to demonstrate your uh Thank you, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to signal anything <laughs> with your order choice. But that's so have you wanted the pad thai out for a big group foodie dinner and you've been like Well, oh. I think it's right to push back against that. Uh, urge. I haven't had a pad thai in like four years. See? Okay. <laughs> no person writing about food has had pad thai in four years. We're all just suffering here, pad thailess. You know how many papaya salads we've had. <laughs> but pa- papaya salad is the next iteration. Like I think, you know, as Thai food becomes more and more popular, it's obviously very. We gotta popular. move on from the papaya salad. We can't have the pa- papaya salad anymore. Can you imagine what it's like to be a server dealing with a table of foodies who will be like, I'll have the like the papaya salad. I hope, but you know, I, I had this same one in Laos like four, four and a half years ago. On like, a- no, no, I'll take it extra spicy. I can handle it. Don't don't give me that watered down stuff. And they're no, like, no, I, I know. They're I know. like, we get it. We, o- we own a restaurant in New York. Like, mm-hmm. cool. Shut up yeah. and just get your pad thai, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it. Uh, Tell them they can subscribe for free at iTunes or wherever they get their podcasts. Send us anything you want. Emails, love, hate to digest at eater.com. Anything you want to hear about? Any tips, tricks? If anything weird has happened to you at a restaurant and you want us to comment, send that into... Or just want us to know. We love reading reading your emails. The emails are the best. There's nothing better than seeing... Email Digest. Yes, love it. Digest at eater.com. Send us emails. We are desperate for them. Special thanks to Lorena Asensios of Astor Wines and Spirits. Thank you to Joe Campanelli for coming in and hanging out. Thank you to Lena Matson at June Wine Bar, to Patty Diaz for all the background, to our whole social team here at Eater for helping support us, and to Martha Daniel, our superstar producer. And thank you to you, Amanda. Thank you, you, know, you, Daniel. It's not easy to sit across from me for two plus hours a week. It's not, but I. It's probably not easy I, to sit across from <laughs> like twenty feet away from me in the office. Do I? You know, I make noise, I make jokes, I spin around in my chair. I'm always trying to crack my back. Huge distraction. Am I a huge distraction? But we all survive. <laughs> the show goes on. We all get it done anyway. <laughs> <laughs>